0: all right well welcome welcome back welcome for the first time some of you and especially welcome for braving the cold and the snow and (laughs) appreciate you being here and i pray none of you were here last week (laughs) tried to get the word out as best i could and hopefully you all got that but welcome to power of joy and this is week two uh, even though it should be week four and if any of you come because you thought tonight was going to be the Emmanuel process Well, we're just all out of whack schedule-wise, and I'm also realizing that we're needing to do some more teaching to get ready for that. So just an FYI, and we'll talk about this later, we are going to wait and dive into the manual process starting the first Wednesday night of March. And we will do a manual processing the first Wednesday night of each month. So for those of you who are terrified about that, you've got a few more weeks to worry. But I think today, tonight will help explain some of that as well. But just a little background, a little review a little bit to kind of remind you. The power of joy, first of all, I want to begin and really keep this definition of joy in the front of your minds. And the definition of joy that I want us to use is a technical definition that says, that is, joy is being with someone who is glad as glad can be to be with me. It's that experience of seeing someone's eyes light up and knowing that they're excited to see you, they're glad to be with you, and that is something that we all enjoy and appreciate, and it's a very blessed thing to be a part of. The cool part about that is that the impact that joy has on our brains and on our lives is much greater than any of us have realized, I believe. Because, you see, first of all, joy feels good. It's the reaction of dopamine released in both brains. That when I'm with someone who's glad to be with me, my brain releases do- dopamine and their brain responds by releasing dopamine and we share it back and forth and we're having ourselves a little dopamine party. And dopamine is the feel-good chemical. In fact, dopamine is the chemical that is released, stimulated in our brain through things like um, methamphetamine, cocaine, sex, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. It's a God-given, God-designed part of our brain that allows us to enjoy and feel pleasure. All right. So it's important to note that dopamine is released and it feels good. It's also important to note that joy however is always relational which distinguishes it from pleasure. Alright? And this is a real critical point I want to just keep reminding you of. Dopamine is released in our brains in lots of things. There's dopamine released if you play a a video game, if you eat carbohydrates, if you take illicit drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference of relational joy is there's a whole series of other chemicals that I don't want to get too complicated in, in part because I don't understand it all and I don't want to expose my ignorance in case anyone here knows more than I do. Okay? And in part because it's really kind of not necessary to know exactly what those are. But in relational connections, one of the things that happens is that dopamine is counteracted by chemicals that are released in the brain, serotonins, oxytocins, those kind of chemicals that help calm us down. So you have the joy that feels good, you have the relational connection that calms down. And that helps us live in a rhythm of joy and quiet that does amazing things as far as the development of our brains and the growth in our lives. So it is the joy, rhythm of joy and quiet is an incredibly uh, beneficial part of our lives. Now just a quick reminder of the transmission and how that takes place. And that is that first of all, remember that joy is communicated first, first of all non-verbally. Uh, telling someone you're glad to be with them may or may not have any effect. And what I mean by that is, if I've had a really rotten day at work and everything in my mind is focused on all the negative things and I walk in the house and I tell my wife, you know, I'm really glad to see you. You know, the words might be there, but the non-verbals are communicating much louder and a much higher decibel level than the verbal words are. Okay the nonverbal is always a more powerful form of communication it's also always authentic that you know i can say words i don't mean i cannot communicate nonverbal joy when i'm not glad to be with you all right and that becomes real important in other things part of what makes it authentic is that it happens so rapidly As we looked at last week, it happens at the rate of six cycles, six complete transactions back and forth in each second that we're together. All right, now that was a rapid review of our week one session. So for those of you, it's your first night here, let me encourage you a couple things. One, I would encourage you to listen to the teaching from week one. It's available on a CD on the back table. It's also available on the Power of Joy website. All right, you can click on newhopelawrence.com and there's a link there, or the direct website is newhopethe4si.com slash pojw.html. But anyway, that'll be up on the screen later on, so if you really want to get it. But if you just go to newhopelawrence.com, our church website, click on Power of Joy, you'll get there. And also a number of you asked about the, my PowerPoint slides, and so I've created a nightmare I know I'm going to regret and that is that I posted week one's PowerPoint slides and I will post week two tonight, tomorrow or sometime when I'm able to get to it. So I'll have week two audio and PowerPoint slides as well. All right, Uh, for those of you who are new, we did go over some ground rules last week that I just want to quickly refer to. And the ground rules are just designed to help keep everyone safe. All right, we all, one of my one of my hopes, dreams, prayers for New Hope from before we even started New Hope would be that this would be a safe place. A place that anyone could come to no matter what they're going through, no matter what go, what's going on in life. And this would be a hospital. It would be a place where people can be loved on. We, may not, we can't fix you, but we can love on you. We can be beside you. And so we need safety. Uh, safety is extreme importance. So here's just some basic ground rules. I think they'll make sense for you. First one is, we'll never do any activity in groups of less than three. And that's just because joy is a powerful thing and sometimes it gets uh, mixed up a little bit. Uh, Second one is confidentiality. Things that are said at Power of Joy need to stay at Power of Joy. Alright, it's not Vegas but it's close. Alright? Unless you have express permission from the person sharing it, Uh, Leave it here, just because you never know. It's amazing how small the world gets sometimes. You think you're telling something to someone that they would never have any idea who it is, and then you find out that's their cousin. All right? So confidentiality is real important. Uh, Also important to leave Dear Abby at home. When we're in our exercises, it's time for active listening. It's not time for advice giving. All right? Also recognize that a power of joy, while being therapeutic, I believe, is not therapy. And so others in your small groups are not therapists. And that holds true even if they happen to be therapists. (laughs) All right? Because we want even therapists to have a safe place. So don't expect the people in your small group to be able to dig into the deep broken places in your heart at this point. Uh, There may be some things that come up. that that I would encourage you to find a good therapist, a good counselor that could help you process. Uh, Power of Joy is a great supplement, but it's not therapy, if that makes sense. Um, Next, don't overwhelm others with too much information or intensity. Uh, Just have a check sometimes if, you know, if you're feeling like you want to talk about the deepest, darkest, most painful moment of your life. Let me just encourage you to ask God, God, is this really the time and place? because it's probably not. Again those may be things to be done in in more intensive sessions. Uh, the other thing is that share when we break up into our groups and stuff sharing is encouraged but not required. So if someone says I pass, let's please honor their boundaries and give, let them know that's okay. If you've had a really rough day or things just aren't clicking for you I pass is always an acceptable answer. Now I will tell you the more you share, the more you share, the more you'll get out of the group. And I think you'll find that as you share, you'll find it rather enjoyable. So, uh, and then the last one is just a kind of general thing. Never had to do this, but intoxication or impairment, chemical impairment of any kind blocks joy for you and for others. So if you come altered, you will be, we will ask you to leave. So don't anticipate that being a problem. But anyway, t- tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to walk, walk through just a basic understanding of our brains. all right? And once again, I'll kind of use my disclaimer, I am not a brain scientist. I am a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a minister. And in my recovery journey and teaching and our leading our recovery groups and stuff, I've come across just some incredible material from Dr. Jim Wilder and Dr. Daniel Siegel and some others. That has been very impactful for me and my journey. And I've just picked some nuggets here and there that have been helpful, and I'll share those things with you. In fact, I was sort of tempted to put this uh, your brain, you know, your brain for dummies, but I didn't want to offend any of you, but that's more my approach to it. And so the first thing I want you to do about understanding your brain is, first of all, to understand the right and left functions. Because when you understand the basic split of our brain, I mean, if you just draw a line through your head at your nose, you will divide your brain in half. And that's an important thing to recognize because the brain is split into two sides. You've probably heard of right-brained and left-brained people. You know, artists and engineers. All right, that's an oversimplification, though it does have some validity. The reality, however, is even the most right-brained person uses the left side of their brain. And even the most left-sided brain, you know, intellectual, brainy, left-side brain person uses the right side of their brain. But the other reality is none of us use both sides of our brain nearly as well as we think we do. <laughs> Alright? And so the first thing I want you to understand about the left-right split of your brain is that the left side is like a file cabinet. And so the left side of our brain contains everything we know verbally and logically. And what I mean by that is, you can just imagine the left side of your brain has a file folder for everything you know about anything from a verbal perspective. For example, you have a folder in your file cabinet the left side of your brain that says dogs. And in that folder is everything you've ever heard or read about dogs. Okay? You know many of the you know names of different breeds. You know the brand of dog food your wife tells you to buy, etc. But it's all verbal logical information. The second thing I, well, I <laughs> my clicker went way ahead of me. I'll, I think I deleted some slides. That's not good. <laughs> So, I'm going to have to remember what I was saying. Okay, you'll know many different uh, verbal logically, you know different breeds, you know the brand of dog food, you know everything you know verbally and logically about the, uh, verbally and logically about dogs. right. but what the right side of your brain does, is the right side of the brain knows everything experientially. right and so the the experiential part of our brain is what we know by what has happened in our life and that's why we have many experiences you know we have many memories that we don't really have uh, even just the information the autobiographical memory of just a side note here the right side of our brain the part of our brain that does or Excuse me. In the left side of our brain, the part of our brain that does autobiographical memory, and by autobiographical memory, I mean things we can remember remembering. You know, I can rem- I can rem- I have some vague memory of learning to ride a bike. I have a pretty vivid memory of riding into the back of that blue Chevy pickup. <laughs> all right, I can autobiographically remember that, but that's not all. I we don't re- we remember much more than we can think about remembering. For example, how many of you in here remember learning how to walk? Okay, none of you's had a stroke and had to relearn it, so you could remember. The reality is, most of us learn to walk sometime around the age of one. Well, the part of our brain that, develop, that, that is able, stores autobiographical memory develops sometime between two and a half and three years of age. So everything that we learn prior to two and a half to three years of age is Physically, neurologically impossible for us to autobiographically remember. And yet, how many of us had to think about how to walk in here today? None of us. We just walked. Well, guess what your brain is doing? It is remembering. All right? That's the right side of your brain remembering experientially. The right side of our brain also functions non-verbally. It picks up on details. You know, it picks up on joy communicated from another person. It picks up on anger. It picks up on, you know, you can picture that, you can sense the tenseness in someone many times. Uh, the right side operates non-verbally. It also is image-based. It thinks in pictures, not words. Uh, it's, it's uh, pros, uh, I hate that word, Pr- prosodic. pros, anyway, it's about voice tones, prosodic, thank you. It's even harder since it's not in my big notes, and I'm trying to read it on that right white screen. But anyway, um, it, it it, it, it takes in information based on voice tone. It's why a child, when you tell them, I'm really glad to be with you, they pick up on your anger, not your words. The other thing that's real critical to note is that the right side of our brain is also the executive control center. And what I mean by that is, that the right side always vetoes the left side when there's a disagreement. The right side has control, it's executive, it's in charge. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Then the last thing, and I finally get back to my notes, so this will get a little more comfortable for me, um, is that the right side of our brain has a four-level hierarchical structure that we'll look at in a moment. And this right side, uh, this, it's also dominant for emotions in the body. It synchronizes, notices, and remembers everything. And that, that's why sometimes people have body memories for things they can't consciously remember and yet can almost feel. And then finally, the right hemisphere decides when the left side can change its beliefs. And we'll talk more about this in a minute. But the bottom line I want you to understand is that no amount of information, verbally and logically, in and of itself will make a difference until the right side gets disturbed enough experientially to tell the left side of the brain, your conclusion makes no sense, you're going to have to come up with a different explanation. You know, it's that kind of goes back to that old saying, don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. All right. But in the left side of the brain, or excuse me, in this hierarchical structure of the brain, what you need to understand is this five layers of development, these five layers of structure. And the first level, the deepest level, the core level of our brain is our thalamus and basal ganglia. It's our attachment center. It's often referred to as the mother core because it's the very core base of our brain. And it's established based upon our earliest relational connections with mom, with dad, and with others in our lives. Now, the problem comes is that when attachment pain kicks in, we're often not aware that it's attachment pain because of how deep in the brain it is. All right? The second level of the brain is what we call the amygdalas, our fear center. Uh, Jim Wilder calls them the guard shacks. And what our amygdalas do is they perceive everything in the world through one of three filters. Everything is either good, bad, or scary. And if the amygdalas, you can just picture, you know, two, yeah, picture two German guards at a guard shack with their guns out. And if, you know, if they picture someone coming up in a car as dangerous or scary, what are they going to do? They're going to close the gates, point the guns, and make it very clear you're not getting in. Alright, that's what our brain does with things that are scary or that our brain determines, our amygdala determines are bad or scary. So if someone has an overactive amygdala then they come into a setting like this and they immediately pick up on four, five, six, seven very scary individuals and but here's the interesting part. Guess what they end up often doing? They end up, often, end up moving towards them almost like they're drawn like a magnet because you're scary and I got to keep an eye on you and I got to keep tabs on you and so in their focus of being afraid of that person they often get drawn to that person. Which often explains why some individuals repeat uh, very destructive and negative patterns of relationship. Okay? Uh, Third level of the brain, well let me stop here for a minute and give one quick part, these first two levels of the brain and this separation right here is what we'll get into starting next week when we talk about monitoring and restoring our relational circuits. And what I mean by that is that there is a major break between level two and level three of the brain. We call the first two levels, the, they call it the, the primitive reptilian brain. You know, the uh, some, well, anyway, that's one, one of the things they call it. But, and part of why they do that is because when we're afraid or when we're in attachment pain, we so often retreat, our amygdala is cl- cl- closed, and we go into a survival mode. And whatever I have to do to stay safe, and to get out of the situation I will do even if it means doing things that aren't really like me. Even if it means running over you because you're in my way of what I think is safety. Okay. For example if you know if I thought there was great danger in this room I would very likely I could very likely be hyper focused on the back doors being the only exit out of here and if you're between me and the back door you're in danger Because if my my relational circuits are off and I am in, uh, in survival mode then the fact that you're standing in my way is only a problem if you're bigger than me and I can't get through you. That's part of why, you know, like the Who concert many years and the panic that took place and people stepping on top of other people. That's part of what's going on. Third level of the brain, and this is where we move into our identity area, is our cingulate cortex. And the cingulate cortex is the part of our brain that synchronizes. You know, if you think about it, it's the part, it's like like dance, a good example of that is like dance movements. That, you know, I can't dance, I grew up in a, you know, I grew up in a church environment that didn't believe in dancing. In fact, uh, the reality was, in the church environment I grew up in, we were against premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. (laughs) All right, You can think about that one for a while but part of what I missed out on was learning this rhythm of synchronization and that is a critical third part of our brain because synchronization allows us to flow with other people, it allows us to learn the give and take it allows us to to synchronize with others it occurs in music, it occurs in dancing, it occurs in the rhythm of joy and quiet as a mother synchronizes with a child you know that process we talked about last week where the mother or the adult is their job is to synchronize to the child and in doing so they literally download this part of their brain to the child's brain so if you had parents who had unhealthy uh, cingulate cortexes and didn't synchronize with you then most likely that's a part of your brain that needs more training needs healing all right? The fourth level of the brain is our prefrontal cortex. And that level of our brain is the control center. And the right orbital prefrontal cortex is a long fancy title, but really all it is is a road map. Okay? Right, obviously right side of your brain, orbital meaning behind the eye, and prefrontal meaning towards the front and the cortex meaning it's at a deep level. All right? So it's just back here behind your eye. And that part of our brain, as we talked about last week, is really fascinating because that part of our brain develops through the rhythm of joy and quiet. That as our parents, as adults in our world, engaged us, shared joy with us, but allowed us to rest. Remember from last week, what we looked at was that rhythm that, you know, that we see, you know, like with a child in a grocery cart in front of you that you smile at them and they smile and it feels good and you smile bigger and they smile bigger and before you know it the child giggles or laughs and then the child looks away that look away is gaze avert and that in a healthy interaction the adult with the child allows the child to rest, waits for the child to kinda get their breath because in essence what that child has done, that child has climbed Joy Mountain as high as they can climb and they can't go anymore and so they turn away and they rest. And then when they're done resting, after a few seconds or a minute or so, the child will look back as if to say, okay, I'm ready for more. And so then you share joy back and forth, you both get the dopamine hits and it feels good, the child giggles again, and then it gaze averts. And in that healthy process, it stimulates the neurochemistry in our brain that the neurochemistry in our brain fires in such a way that it stimulates the growth of our prefrontal cortex. Now unfortunately if you grew up in a home like I did and that prefrontal cortex was not stimulated properly it was not there wasn't joyful eyes ready to engage you or maybe there were joyful eyes that engaged you but when you needed to rest they said no no here here I'm right here and they didn't allow you to rest then that rhythm of joy and quiet is disturbed and that part of your brain does not develop properly. All right? And when that happens, really destructive things happen in the brain. One of the things that happens is that people who have poorly developed prefrontal cortexes often often struggle with ADHD. They struggle with impulse control. They struggle with uh, goal setting. Make, ma- maintain, making and maintaining priorities. They struggle with being placed, time management, getting places on time, etc., cetera, et cetera. And so as I make this list, you know, don't elbow your, your spouse beside you um, because the reality is it's most of us. Most of us have some significant prefrontal cortex issues. But then the fifth level of the brain that is real critical to look at uh, the fifth level of the brain is the file cabinet. It's our information based system. And the reason that that's important to see this hierarchical structure is because it makes a whole lot of sense of why things haven't worked for us. And what I mean by that is that since it's a hierarchy it means that if anything goes wrong in levels one, two, three, or 4 I lose access to level 5. When I first heard Jim Wilder explain this, it was like, "Oh, well, now that makes sense." Because you see, I was really good. I had, I, you know, I'm not, I don't mean this in a braggadocious way. I just mean this is an informative way. I had a very well-developed fifth level of my brain. I was, I think, you know, looking back and dealing with my daughter, I believe that, you know, now they would have tested me as gifted. I had very strong verbal skills. I always learned things very easily. I was the kid everybody got mad at because I didn't study and I made the A. All right? And I had all the information. And just as a little background here, this was especially true church-wise. I was the leader of my youth group. I was the Bible Bowl whiz kid. In fact, I was the Bible whiz kid who one year did not miss a single question at our big tournament thing, whatever we call it. It was really whacked, but anyway, we won't go there now. <laughs> okay. I had, you know, I just all but memorized every book of the Bible that we did in Bible Bowl, which we did four or five books a year. I had all the information. Then I went to college. What did I study? Biblical related studies. Almost straight A's. I go to graduate school. What do I study? Biblical and related studies. Straight A's. Information. No problem. But guess what I kept finding myself in? I kept finding myself in my addiction to pornography when I knew all the information. I knew every passage there was about it. I knew every reason why you shouldn't do it and yet I always, I just kept ending back up there again and again. Why? Because I, you know, if you could picture my brain, you know, if if you could picture my brain it was like the left side of my brain was like this and I would be too heavy to keep keep my head straight and my right side was atrophy. I had the information but I didn't have the relationship and the other disciplines and growth that needed to take place in the right side of my brain. So what would happen is, I would get in attachment pain, or I would get in a fearful place, and I lose access to the information. A good way to picture this is if you could picture like a pipe, and in the pipe, this long pipe, there'd be gates that can be closed in the pipe. And so the water's flowing down and if something goes, you know, if, if the water flows through to the, it gets to the attachment gate and things are in good shape, then it can make it to the second gate, which is your fears, your amygdalas. And if you're not afraid there, then it can make it to the third gate, which is your cingulate cortex, your identity center, the part of you that allows you to be yourself, synchronized with others, etc. And if things are in good shape there, then it flows to the fourth level, to your prefrontal cortex. And if things are good there, then it flows to your information and you're able to intrigate, intrig- in- I'm having trouble with words tonight. You're able to combine those things all together and use them very well. But if you're in attachment pain, and we'll talk about that more tonight and in future weeks, if you're in attachment pain or you're in a very fearful place, It's like the gate gets shut and you no longer have access to that information. That puts some things in perspective for you. Help you understand why in your life you've done things and when you've looked back on them, you've shook your head head and said, I knew better than that. Why did I do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're dealing with, you're, you're dealing with things on the basis of your fears and your pain and you are reacting in ways that you are not able to think them through clearly and be yourself in. And when that happens, things go greatly awry and I just realized why my notes were all messed up is that I already created the document to put on the web so I didn't have the repeated slides and that's what I was working off of. So if you give me one second to find my place, we'll be back in good shape. There we go. But What I want you to see from this hierarchy more than anything else is that all the information in the world is useless when the right side spots of our brain oh I'm not up there thank you I'm on here (laughs) there we go is that better all the information in the world is useless to us when our unresolved attachment pain and fears kick into overdrive and so a huge part of the power of joy and my desire for this class is to help us to learn the information and hopefully begin practicing some of the skills that can help us heal the brain. And so what I want to talk about now is I want to talk about what it it means to bring healing for the brain. And I think there are some significant things we can do to help help be part of this healing process. And the first step to healing the brain is to admit that great damage has been done to my brain. And what I mean by that is I must admit that things were missing in my past that should have built up my brain's control center. And, you know, again, going back to that rhythm of joy and quiet from week one or that I've already alluded to, you know, that wasn't well done in my life and, you know, most, a lot of that was done prior to our ability to remember it, but to just acknowledge that things were missing in my life. But then secondly, not only remember the things that, you know, recognize that things were missing, but to acknowledge the things that I have done to further damage my brain. Because my sin, my addictions, the things that I turn to rather than turn to God, continue to damage an already damaged brain. But then secondly, after admitting the damage that is done to my physical brain, it's real important to begin arresting addictive behaviors and we'll get into this later on but there's a wonderful acronym that Ed Kahuri and Jim Wilder have come up with in the in the restarting materials called beeps and beeps stands for behaviors, events, experiences, people and substances that we use to artificially regulate our emotions and the wonderful thing about the beeps an acronym is it covers everything <laughs> so no matter what you struggle with it falls under that umbrella of beeps you know, some people say, well, you know, I don't look at pornography, I don't do alcohol, I don't do drugs. Well, guess what? I've been around enough people long enough to know you still have beeps. They may be more socially acceptable, they may be chocolate, maybe carbohydrates, it may be church busyness, it may be, ooh, dare I say it, preaching. There's a powerful rush that comes with having an audience in your hands. And those are things that we use to artificially regulate the dopamine, to give us that dopamine hit so that we're distracted and we don't have to deal with the painful things in our lives. So, one of the realities of recovery is to say, oh, to begin to recognize what our beeps are and to say, okay, I am going to arrest those behaviors. But here's a real important point. That is that points two and three arrest addictive behaviors, and my next point often go hand in hand. Because you see, many times individuals cannot successfully arrest addictive behaviors until they first begin addressing issues with the right side of their brain. I tried memorizing Bible verses. I tried praying a specific prayer list every day. I tried so many different things to deal with my addiction that no matter how hard i tried them they didn't get me out until i began unknowingly doing some things that really started bringing healing to the right side of my brain in fact it's been in retrospect um, background there my story is that uh, my sobriety dates february of 2000 so right at 11 years now and 11 years ago when i started doing some of the things we're going to talk about i didn't know why i was doing them other than God was leading me in those directions but in the thriving materials and the recovery materials I began to see why they've been so effective and we're going to talk about some of those. All right Uh, and the first and foremost way that you heal the right side of your brain is through relational connections and naturally that means relational connections with others in fact one of the chapters of my new hope for sexual integrity recovery manual is titled, The Fellowship of the Forgiven. And where that title came from was just noticing the different guys in our recovery. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it bears repeating here. That we noticed very early on that we had guys who'd come to us who were bookworms. They were like me. They could read things. They could get get the information. And so they'd come and they would get the information, but they wouldn't really connect in the groups. You know, they might make a phone call every now and then. They'd show up for two groups out of three or a couple times a month kind of deal. They'd read all the information, but they wouldn't change. And then we noticed there were some other guys who really weren't very good in school, didn't, you know, weren't big book people, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but they really plugged into relationships. They came to multiple groups a week they got together for coffee and other activities with people outside a group they made phone calls they built uh, relationships and guess what started happening they started getting healthy why well now I understand it's because they were building their prefrontal cortex because as they were in that rhythm of joy and quiet with one another the brain stimulated and the brain fires the neurochemistry that stimulates growth in the critical part of their brain that then gives them uh, veto power over their cravings. In fact, I'm losing my slides, that was an important thing I left out about level 4. The level 4 of our brain, the control center, the uh, prefrontal cortex, that's one of the things that it does is it gives us veto power over our cravings. It's what allows us to say no to that second piece of cherry cobbler or the porn spam email or whatever our particular beep might be. And so when that part of our brain is deficient, it's incredibly difficult for us to have control over our cravings. But when that part of our brain grows, then we start having more success in that area. But then, second way of relational connections that's that's real critical that we're going to move into in the coming weeks is that it also means um, relational connections um, with with God. All right, um, I'm trying to get catch up. There we go. The second relational connection that is incredibly critical for our recoveries and the healing the right side of our brain is the relational connection with Jesus. And I know that there's individuals here who are coming from different perspectives. I know that there may even be some in here who do not have a relationship with Jesus, maybe even kind of opposed to that. Well, let me just be honest with you about my bias. I believe that there is much that can be learned about ourselves there is much healing that can take place through a lot of psychological things, some of the brain science we're learning, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my personal belief is there's some things that only Jesus can heal. There are many things in my life that I have changed in, primarily because of the work that I've done. There's many things in my life that I believe He has changed that are far beyond anything that I could do. And so a relational connection with Jesus is a critical part of our recovery journey, I believe. And one of the things that we learn from Scripture is that one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel. And the cool part about His name, Emmanuel, is Emmanuel means God is with us. And so one of the things we can learn from even one of Jesus' names that He's given at birth is that He is always with me, and I believe he is always glad to be with me. And that's a real critical distinction because we all have these images of God, and most of the images we have of God are incredibly distorted. You know, I grew up with an image of God, and the best description I ever saw of it was that the God I knew was an Alabama traffic cop just waiting for me to make a mistake. And he was ready to pull me over, read me the riot act, throw the cuffs on me, beat me up, do whatever, because I screwed up. Well, guess what, folks? That image of God did not come from my heavenly Father. It came from other Father images in my life. Because one of the things that I'm learning both biblically and more and more experientially is Jesus is always glad to be with us. You know, Larry Crabb, I thought, put it great a number of years ago when his a class that he was at. He said, you know, if you knock on my door some days, you're going to catch me in a bad mood, and I'm not really going to be glad to see you. I might say, oh, how nice. I'm glad you're here. Do you want to come in? <laughs> but deep down inside, I'm thinking, what in the world are you doing on my porch? But the good news about God is, He's always glad to see us. There is never a time that we show up on His porch, there's never a time that we knock on His door, there's never a time that we even look His direction from the pit of our pig pen, that He isn't glad as glad can be to be with us. And that goes much further than an intellectual understanding. We have to experience that. Because you see, one of the things about our brain, and this is a part I left out earlier so I can backtrack on it, is the right side of our brain is experiential and so going back to that example of the dog and the dog food you know our brain knows everything about a dog the left side of our brain it knows everything verbally and logically but I want you to just think about it about the difference between two people's experience of a dog imagine person A grew up with their dog sleeping with them at night and it was their best friend from the time they could remember And so when even the word dog is mentioned, what happens for them? You know, they get this warm feeling. They're glad to hear the word dog. Okay, imagine person B, who when he was four years old, was walking down the street and was attacked by a pit bull and almost mauled to death. That person, person B, hears the word dog, and ripples of terror may begin going through their body. And guess what, an important part of that is that no amount of verbal logical information will take away that fear. In fact, one of the things Dr. Carl Lehman says that I think is very, very poignant here is he says, no amount of verbal logical left brain information will ever change a right brain belief. Anything we know experientially, it doesn't matter how much we read, how much information we get, it won't change. So, for example, the kid who is mauled by a pit bull when he's four years old can read all the books in the world about how wonderful man's best friend is. And when he hears the dog barking behind him, it will be an involuntary response of terror. It won't change. The only thing that will change his beliefs and felt system about a dog is new positive experiences with friendly dogs. But we've seen people like that, haven't we? We've seen the nicest dog, you know, we have a new dog right now and it's really cool, it's really sad but cool, we got her from a a rescue lady and stuff and if a new person comes to our house, our dog will typically run and get in her kennel. (laughs) Or she will sit there just kind of coward and afraid, All right. So you could bring somebody who has this deep fear of dogs and put her in front of our dog who was cowering from her and guess what you've got? You've got a dog and a person pretty much mirroring each other. There's no danger whatsoever. And over time there can be a desensitization. There can be a new experience created. But until that new experience is created, that's what they believe. Same thing is true in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. If your experience with your earthly father and other father figures in your life have been judgmental, negative, critical, painful, then your natural first reaction to your Heavenly Father is that experiential fear, that experiential running away. The Emmanuel process learning to experience Jesus' presence with us can begin transforming that. It can begin transforming it because we can begin to experience Jesus' presence in a new and powerful way. You see, the good news is that Jesus is very creative and persistent. And if you allow him to, he will find ways to reveal himself to you in ways that feel safe. Uh, I've had experiences with leading people in Emmanuel prayer who had very fearful ideas of Jesus and God. And one of the coolest ones was a woman who, uh, when she finally began to perceive Jesus' presence, he was, uh, the only way that she could do it was she was in a living room in, in this memory she had. And I said, well, could you look out the window down the street? Maybe he's down there and she did and she found him he was a long ways away and a long ways away he wasn't quite so scary and then through some prayer time and some processing time we gradually she invited Jesus to move a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer till eventually he came in the house and he sat beside her but guess what he was never upset at her for needing the distance he understood her fears And he was good with that. Jesus is very creative and persistent. And if we allow him to, he will find his ways to reveal himself to us. And one of the best ways that we found for this is the Emmanuel process that I've already begun introducing. It's developed by Dr. Carl Lehman, and we will begin practicing this process in a couple of weeks and we have seen Emmanuel meet individuals in some amazing some amazing places Uh, I'm going longer on time than I intended but this story is too good not to tell Tom's story illustrates this quite well I call him Tom's that's not his real name obviously but Tom had intermittently attended our men's groups for about three years but when he first came he was so shut down that he had difficulty talking even in small check-in groups of three or four guys. He was totally silent in big groups. He had struggled with sexual addiction for many years but was finally beginning to make some strides. He was consistently coming to groups when he had a huge crash by going to a strip club. In a very low place, he went back to something he had done many years earlier. And he discovered the clubs even more intoxicating than in the past as he purchased many lap dances and experienced the physical touch and counterfeit joy of conversations with young women who were both attractive and even more importantly friendly to him. While powerfully intoxicating in the moment, the experiences left him in great pain and filled with deep shame. And in his shame, he found himself returning periodically and even entertaining thoughts of suicide. He had also started meeting with me regularly for counseling, and I had just learned about the Emmanuel process. I explained it to him, and he said he was willing to give it a try. In the first session, he went to a very safe, feel-good kind of place that I hope we all start at in a few weeks. And I put that out because I want to let you know Jesus most of the time begins very safely with us. And in this safe place, he experienced the presence of Jesus and he and I were both greatly encouraged. In fact, he was one of the first people I led in it that really had a great experience. I was quite excited. So the following week, we started with his safe place with Jesus. And then I encouraged him to spend a few moments there just enjoying and experiencing Jesus' delight in him. And then next I told him to ask Jesus where he wanted him to go today. I saw him physically tense up as he said, I'm getting an image from the strip club. Well, my first thought was, this is not good. My first thought was that Satan was trying to distract him or to bring condemnation. So I prayed aloud, Jesus, by your blood and by your resurrection, we declare that Satan has no authority here. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Please do not allow Satan to distract or condemn. I then instructed him to ask Jesus where he wanted him to go. Fully expecting him to go someplace else. But instead his response was, I'm still in the strip club with the woman who was nice to me. While I was somewhat surprised he was still there, by God's grace and I believe his prompting, I hesitantly asked the critical question, do you have any sense of Jesus' presence there? Immediately Tom perked up a little and said in a surprised tone, he said, yeah, she's right there, he's right there just above her. Hmm. What's he like? I asked. Is he upset or angry with you? No. He seemed sad, but still glad to be with me, just like in the previous memory. I paused and silently asked Jesus what to do. I got to tell you, I was a little befuddled at this moment. I didn't expect him to find Jesus in a strip club. And the only thing I could think of to do was to have Tom ask Jesus questions. So I instructed Tom to ask Jesus if there was anything he wanted to say to him. And immediately a tear started trickling down Tom's face as he replied, Jesus said, I know you are here because your pain is great. However, what you need is not her, but me. Wow. Needless to say, we were both blown away. I believe Tom felt much like the woman in John 8 when Jesus told her, go and sin no more. He felt seen, heard, and understood, and in no way, shape, or form condemned. He knew that Jesus saw his sin and his pain, but did not condemn him. Instead of judgment, Jesus offered the solution for his sin. And the solution, of course, was learning that his deepest need was not for sex or a woman, but for Jesus himself. And folks, that's what happens when we relationally connect with Jesus. And just a side note here, he does it in ways other than just a manual prayer. He does it in times of worship. He sometimes does it in walks in nature But what I want you to be aware of is that relationally connecting with Jesus does an amazing, powerful thing in our brains. He is the healer. Relationally connecting with Jesus brings incredible healing to the right side of our brain. Another thing that brings healing, the second thing that can have a powerful effect on the right side of our brain is what I call personal attunement. And personal attunement means thinking about your thinking and you do it when you journal and when you meditate. You know we've seen for many years how things often start clicking for guys when they start journaling or writing out answers to workbook questions. And now I'm beginning to understand why that's so effective. You see when you journal you build connections between the information in the left side of your brain and the experiential right side of your brain And that helps stabilize the brain and stops the tug of war that so often leads us back into those destructive places. All right, but then there's a third part of this. I'm kind of running through quickly. And that is a third part of healing the right side of our brain is working hard on our recovery. Jim Wilder in the restarting video makes a great statement. He says that you must work as hard on your recovery as you did on your addiction, that we've all done damage to our brains. and we have to work hard to reverse that damage. And so, I really, I hope and pray that power of joy can be one of those places that begins equipping you for doing some of that work. I want to give you some resources quickly that that I have here. And the first one that I want to give is just to let you know the MP3 audio for these sessions is on our website at newhopeforsi.com p-o-j-w or just go to newhopelawrence.com and click on power of joy all right uh, secondly uh, this teaching is a lot of the teaching tonight comes right out of my neurotheology of sex and addiction dvd and it's on the back table there uh, also with that the attachment teaching we will start looking at in coming weeks and the attachment teaching is also available on DVD those are available for $15 each or $25 for the pair if that makes sense the attachment audio is also on the new hope for Lawrence newhopelawrence.com website if you poke around a little bit you can find it there Um, also there's audio CDs back there our audio CDs are free Uh, the class is free Uh, But I would be uh, bereft to our community here if I didn't let you know donations are accepted. Uh, We do operate as a ministry, and our church is, you know, I wish we had this many people on Sunday mornings. I look forward to the day when we do. So our church is operating uh, at a handicap. In fact, one of the things I often say is that New Hope is handicapped because they have a very part-time pastor. Not that I work part-time, but that enough of my work is about our recovery ministry and not about new hope as a church. And so any donations you want to make for materials or for being in the class or anything of that nature is greatly appreciated. In the coming weeks, let me give you a little head start of where we're going. Next week we're going to look at monitoring and restoring our relational circuits. We're going to start looking at that separation that takes place between levels 2 and 3 of the brain. To begin to be aware of when we're going into survival mode and learning how to not go into survival mode. And that's been some incredibly significant teaching and skills. Um, We're also going to look at how pain and trauma limits access to the upper part of our brain in coming weeks. And then with that, uh, this first Wednesday night of each month, we're actually going to begin doing the Emmanuel process. And please, uh, one hesitancy I have about telling the story that I did is that that was a very intense story. Let me encourage you that most of the Emmanuel places that people go to, especially in these group contexts, are much much safer and less threatening so if you're nervous about that let me just encourage you to keep coming and you'll find more about that as we get get there um, what I want us to end with tonight is an appreciation exercise and Mike well, Mike if you could grab half of these and Mike and Michael if you guys could pass those out um, what I want us to do is I want you to take a couple minutes where you're at and hopefully if you have got a pen there's a there's a cup of pins in the back, in fact if somebody Kevin could you grab that pin back there and be available for anybody that needs them what I want you to do is I want you to take a couple minutes to complete part one of the appreciation handout and you can kinda be doing that while I give a quick example of it. Appreciation is one of the ways, one of the most powerful ways to reconnect with our identity center of our brain. And I've got a great example of this that I love to tell and hate to tell. And that is that uh, a couple years, several years ago, I came home one night, I was starting to learn some things about appreciation and I announced at dinner time that we were going to do appreciation before dinner tomorrow night. And not just Thanksgiving, but we can do this at other times too. And so, of course, God has a great sense of humor. So the next day I come to dinner and I've had a really just rotten day. I'm in a bad mood I'm grumpy I'm foul and all I want to do is get dinner over with get the kids in bed and call the day over and I sat down to the table and I remembered what I told the kids the night before and my first thought was "Crud! I don't want to do appreciation so but I knew it was one of those things my daughter at the time was 11 about 11 years old and so I knew I'd laid it out there so if I didn't follow up with it it was going to be one of those places that was going to come back and haunt me and so I went ahead and said okay um... we'll do it and so I reminded them I said you guys remember what I said about appreciation does anybody have anything they're appreciative of anything they're thankful for anybody want to start and of course you know what I got I got the dead you know the dead Stark stare and being dad being that it was my idea in the first place I knew I had to do it and so I don't even remember what I came up with but I totally force-fed faked it went through the motions and it was pathetic and I don't think anybody else ever came up with anything either but at least I had done it about 10 minutes later we're eating and all of a sudden I realized that we're having conversation and we're enjoying being together and I realized what later on looking now that I understand this stuff I look back and I realized what had happened as I spoke appreciation it reconnected my brain so one of the most repeated exercises we're gonna do here on Wednesday nights is appreciation so take a minute and just about another minute to try to fill some of those out and then what I want you to do as quickly as possible is we'll just take a minute to do that and then I'll give the instructions.